And since it is the 4th of July holiday weekend, so to speak, tonight I wanted to reflect a little bit uh, on independence and really reflect in the way that the sitting allows us to do. I mean, we sit, and in the simplest language, we sit to quiet the mind and open the heart and remember from a deeper place what we really value. So in the outer way, if we think about independence, the de- you know, the celebration of the 4th of July, there are all these wars of independence that have taken place, revolutions. And the underlying energy is the longing of people for freedom. And whether they're the Kurds or the Iraqis, you know, or whether it was the Cubans in their revolution or the Vietnamese or the Palestinians or the Salvadorians or the French back in their revolution, there's this outer movement of people seeking freedom as the 4th of July celebrates the uh, Independence Day from Britain or England. But what is freedom? Freedom from England, right? (laughs) Maybe. Or freedom from our parents. You know, is that when we become free, we become free of our parents? You know, but it's pretty hard to be free of England when we speak English, right? And we are, we, we somehow have taken on this culture or free from our parents until you have kids and then you know, you're, as my daughter was like three years old and doing something terrible, and all of a sudden my father came blurting out of my mouth. I hadn't, you know, imagined that he would come out in that form, but there he was, you know. And then my mother had a comment about that that also came out of my mouth. <laughs> so what is it that we get free from? You know, freedom from difficulty and pain, freedom from other people's influences. What is, what is, what is it? Um, and when we think about it politically, which revolutions have we helped? Um, most often it seems the revolutions that we help are the ones that are in our economic interest, if we look honestly. And there are a lot of other revolutions that we kind of shine on. But what I'd like to reflect about is more an alternate view of independence, or let you reflect on this with me, um, not the, just the outer political. I mean, what is independence? Suppose we view the process of independence not as becoming independent like the cowboy, you know, the lone cowboy out there, um, but with an open heart, with some tenderness with eyes of compassion that see the longing in every human being to be free. And when we see that longing for freedom, then independence starts to change in our eyes, you know, because in the kind of trivial ways that surround us, we can see that independence seems to be, you know, freedom to buy more and sell more, you know, and have more. 500 channels instead of 120 channels or whatever it is, 
you know, and as Rita Mae Brown says, now in America the word revolution is used to sell pantyhose. <laughs> so things have sort of gone down a little bit. Does independence mean the independence to do just as we please, individually or as a nation? To sell arms to as many people as we like around the world? And then what are the results of that? Um, This is, uh, let's see. A couple of comments on this. H.L. Mencken, who talks about uh, politics, he says, the whole aim of politics, and this was probably 70 years ago, the whole aim of politics is to keep the populace in a continuous state of alarm and hence clamoring to be led to safety by menacing them with an endless series of imaginary hobgoblins and other such fictional concerns. Thank you, H.L. You know, um, what is our freedom? Freedom to have uh, the ability to you know, fly and go through hours of security. Freedom of choice. As someone said, you know, in America, the choices of important things start are starting to shrink. There's only a few major big banks and a few major oil companies and a few, you know, major institutions, a few half a dozen companies that own almost the majority of the media. Um, but there are 145 kinds of beer, you know, <laughs> and 86 kinds of mustard that you can buy. What is freedom? So there's this outer freedom and the importance of seeking it, the uh, freedom from oppression and injustice. But the one who knows in us, the place of wisdom, the knowing heart, understands that all this outer stuff isn't the deeper meaning of independence. As Thoreau said, many men go fishing for the whole of their life without realizing it's not fish that they're after. And so we can get lost in those outer things, but if we stop and listen in the heart, we know that there's something else going on. And the invitation of the Buddha is to invite us to discover an independence of the heart that is possible anywhere and anytime. The Buddha, like us, saw the changing conditions of life. And in the midst of all the changing conditions of life, found a still center. She said, There are those who discover they can leave behind confused reactions and become patient as the earth, unmoved by the fires of anger and fear, unshaken as a pillar, unperturbed as a clear and quiet pool. And this is really the invitation of Dharma practice or training of the heart and mind. As the Buddha did to invite us to touch the fear and grasping and aggression and delusion and 
birth and death and gain and loss and all the changing circumstances of life and find the center point, the stillness in the midst of them all, which is our birthright. O nobly born, this is your true nature, your Buddha nature. So Thomas Merton wrote this very beautiful passage in his last book, The Asian Journals, about uh, visiting the monastery in Polonarua in Sri Lanka, which has a huge cliff carved in the form of three or four marble Buddha statues that Merton described as the most compelling and beautiful pieces of art that he'd ever seen. Um, You walk across the beautiful green lawn up to this cliff and he said the statues almost looked alive probably more alive than some people you know Um, and looking at these Buddhas peaceful and empty he said I saw the silence of these extraordinary faces the great smiles huge and subtle filled with every possibility questioning nothing rejecting nothing. The great smiles of peace, not of emotional resignation, but an inner peace that is seen through every question without trying to discredit anyone or anything. For the Buddha, the awakened one, the whole world arises in emptiness and everything in it is held in compassion. So we too have this possibility to discover in any moment, in any situation, no matter how difficult, that there is a freedom of spirit where we can step outside the drama and our investment in it and how it should be and how it should turn out and come back to that which is silent, compassionate, timeless. T.S. Eliot calls it the still point, the still point of the turning world neither from nor towards. At the still point there the dance is where past and future is gathered, neither movement from nor toward. And except for the point, the still point, there would be no dance and there is only the dance. And the still point is always now, this eternal present which is all we actually have. We have the thoughts of the future, fantasies about what might come, and thoughts about the past, memories, which are the stories we tell us of one picture of what happened. But all we actually have is now, this amazing eternal present. And the invitation of the awakened ones, of the Buddha, it says, come and live your life fully here, free, open. So we sit in meditation and we could say that we seek this freedom. But when the heart opens, we realize that we already possess this freedom, that we already are this freedom. I mean, who are we really born into these human bodies? We hold these truths to be self-evident. It says that all men are created equal. Now, uh, we could amend that, hopefully. All men and women are created equal, thank you. Um, And there is a kind of 
I find inspiring and amazing vision in this democratic statement of freedom. And people who came to North America, to the colonies at that time, came to escape from outer tyranny, from religious persecution, from economic injustice. All these people came to the U.S. or what was becoming that country. And so there's this beautiful vision. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that we are all created equal. But if we reflect honestly, there's also a great cultural sadness because the vision of the founding of the country isn't really fulfilled in a lot of ways. Whether it was from the beginning, the founding fathers who made these beautiful statements and then still owned slaves and still were, you know, oppressors of women and so forth, or the fact that racism and sexism and the disparity of classes and injustice is still with us a lot. Langston Hughes, who wrote this amazing poem where he said, let America be America again, the America she never was. This tribute to the vision, let America be or become the America again, she never was. So what is this democracy? All men and women are created equal. When you read that, it actually has the echoes of the Buddha of 2,000 years before, where a person came to him and said, who is it that is a noble one in this society? Is it a great priest, a Brahmin? Is it at the Kshatriyas, the warriors? O nobly born, those who are high born. And the Buddha said, one is noble not by caste or race or creed or class, but one is noble by one's heart, by one's deeds, by one's words and expression. This is where nobility is found. And he created, the Buddha created this whole sangha or community that was based on a genuine equality among caste and race and creed and not so genuine in terms of men and women. That took another 2,500 years to get kind of attended to. But in the time, it was pretty radical. And here is Ananda, the chief disciple of the Buddha and his attendant, who was sent on a mission and passed by a well near a village and saw this young woman, Pakati, an outcast, and untouchable, and asked her for water to drink. And she said, Oh, Master, I am too humbly born to give you water to drink. Do not ask this of me, lest your holiness be contaminated, for I am of the lowest caste, an outcast. And at that time, you, you didn't want to be touched if in that system by such a person, if you can imagine. You can imagine. You do know. And Ananda looked at her kindly and replied, I ask not for your caste, but water, please. And her heart leapt joyfully, and she gave Ananda the water, and he thanked her, and she followed him, for she had never been treated such. And having heard that Ananda was a disciple of the Buddha, she went to the Blessed One and said, Oh, help me, 
Let me live in a place where your disciple Ananda dwells, that I may see him and minister to him, because he has treated me so well. And the Blessed One understood the emotions of her heart and said, Pakati, your heart is full of love, but you do not understand your own sentiments. It is not Ananda that you love, but his kindness and gracious compassion. Then accept this compassionate kindness that you have seen him practice toward you and practice it toward others. And although they would say you are born of low caste, you will be a model for the noble men and women of this country. So that was a pretty radical thing in those times. And it points to what is genuine freedom and independence. Not a disconnection or a withdrawal from the world or an isolation from others, but a freedom of heart in the midst of it all, a connection to it all. That passage that I've read a lot lately from Bishop Tutu, where he says, in Africa, when you ask someone, how are you? The reply you get is always in the plural, even when you're speaking to one person. A man would say, we are well or we are not well. He himself may be well, quite well, but his grandmother is not well, and so he is not well either. The solitary, isolated human being is really a fiction and a contradiction in terms. And so when we look with a tender heart and a wise heart, freedom opens up as we let go of the small sense of self, the body of fear, the separate sense of self, and begin to notice that our freedom is not independence, but interdependence. In fact, we should call this, if we were wise in this country, interdependence day. (laughs) Wisdom says, I am nothing. Love says, I am everything. This is the great wisdom of the heart. So even when we look historically at the colonists of America trying to free themselves from the British king, they did it with the help of the French, right? It wasn't like, okay, they did it by themselves. They needed the help of the French. Of course, then how we treat the French afterward, that's another question. But actually, the U.S. Revolution inspired the French Revolution. But it wasn't just the French. That revolution took place, as all things do from causes and conditions, because of the Magna Carta and the English lords who stood up to the King of England some hundreds of years before that. And it took place because of what happened in ancient Athens and the early democracies and the experiments in democracies in ancient Greece and Plato and Socrates. And in each of us is this child of all humanity, all human history, all races, all creatures, all oceans are in us. We're not separate from that. And every action is an action that's interdependent with life. We are held by the world. We are the world. We're the, we're the min- minerals of the earth and the water of the sea. I mean, we weep these tears of salt. We weep seawater, basically. Our body is seawater and our life is inter twined with rainforest and ozone and 
the nations of Africa and China and the Middle East and whether they're called the axis of evil, Iran and Iraq and North Korea, if I remember the, the list correctly, um, our fate and lives are intertwined with those people who live there. And our good and evil is intertwined with them. And with Palestine and Israel and South Africa and Kosovo and Ireland and Sudan and Japan. And in each of our bodies is sunlight. And that's all the plants we eat. The amazing thing that the plants learned on this earth was to take sunlight and turn it into sugar. Imagine turning light into sugar. That's why we like sugar, I think, actually. (laughs) So we have, we taste sunlight in all the plants that we eat. And gravity, which keeps us from flying off this orb. Gravity is actually allurement, as Brian Swim calls it. Gravity is actually love. It's the love that planets and orbs of the solar system and the galaxies feel for one another. And so they're attracted. And we're made out of, you know, ancient volcanoes and, and early sea creatures. And the whole gene pool is there in you. And we think we're independent. You know, and there's the little tiny mites around the edges of your eyes. And there's, I don't know what, Wes Nisker does this wonderful talk about, you know, how many millions of creatures there are in your stomach. And that basically says that we're walking feedlots, you know, with this entire ecosystem inside. I'm going to be independent, right? Interdependence Day. We are the body of the earth. We are in the web of mutuality. And what a mysterious thing it is that we can open this hole at one end of our body into which we stuff dead plants and animals, right? To feed ourselves. And put in there figs from the Euphrates Valley and wheat from Kansas and grapes from southern France and, uh, I don't know, it depends what your appetite is like these days. Um, Sushi from wherever, you know. And it becomes part of us. You know, France is in there, and the Euphrates, and, and uh, Japan, and all of that become part of your own body. And you think you're separate? And then Chief Seattle, who says, What is man without the beasts? If all the beasts were gone, men would die from a great loneliness of spirit. For whatever happens to the beasts also happens to man. So when we quiet the mind and open the heart, we sense that there isn't an independence, but rather an interdependence. And in this interdependence, ecology is us. The, the earth is our body. Of course, we, you know, you want to take care of your fingers. You don't say, oh, this poor finger. Um, maybe I'll have some pity on it. If, if you burn it, I mean, you feel it and it feels you're identified with it. And in a certain way, the earth is our body. So ecology is natural. Injustice is something that we have to respond to because it's us. 
So then the, the text goes on. This is like reading some Buddhist text, right? Um, after it talks about... Uh, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men and women are created equal. That they are endowed with certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. This is like one of the Buddhist lists, really. Dana, Sila, Bhavana, or Sila, Samadhi, Panya. What is life? Life is this invitation to connect with the shared web of our being. Here's Thomas Merton standing... He left his monastery in in, uh, Gethsemane and he went out to the big city in Louisville. He said, and there I was at the corner of 4th and Walnut in the center of the shopping district and I was suddenly overwhelmed with the realization that I loved all these people, that they were mine and I'm theirs and that we could not be alien to one another even though we were total strangers. It was like waking from a dream of separateness, of spurious self-isolation and monastic holiness. This sense of liberation from an illusory difference was such a relief and joy, I laughed out loud. I have the immense joy of being a member of the race in which the divine spark has become incarnate again and again. There is no way of telling people that they are all walking around shining like the sun. So if we listen to this text, if you will, from the heart of wisdom, then there comes this sense of reverence for life. Life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. The reverence for life is so natural. We don't want to kill. It's really simple. You know, and yes, there's the whole thing of soldiers and so forth. And I wouldn't fault the bravery or honor, uh, you know, sacrifice of anybody who fought in a war for something they value. But perhaps we honor them better or best by our willingness to live with care for all beings and to minimize wars and minimize harm. So when there's this reverence for life, then our interdependence says not to kill. Because every form of life, I mean, even the littlest ones, you try the littlest creatures in your home, they don't want to be squished. I mean, ask them. They'll, they'll show you, you know. And not to steal. Not because you shouldn't steal, but it's more like this simple story. The farmer whose corn always took first place in the state fair had the habit of sharing his best seed corn with all the farmers in the neighborhood. When asked why, he said, it's really a matter of self-interest. The wind picks up the pollen and carries it from field to field. So if my neighbors grow inferior corn, the cross-pollination brings down the quality of my own. And that's why I'm concerned that they plant only the very best. It's natural when we listen from the heart to not kill or steal or harm others through the misuse of our words or our energy or sexuality and so forth. 
I mean, it's obvious when you have a contemplative practice, it's really hard to sit in meditation after a day of killing and stealing. It just doesn't work very well. So the pursuit of life is really the reverence for life. There's this lovely meal grace that Norman Fisher wrote for the Zen community. As we make ready to eat this food, we remember with gratitude the people, animals, plants, insects, creatures of the sky and sea, air and water, fire and earth, all turning in the wheel of living and dying, whose joyful exertion, not separate from ours, provide our sustenance this day. And so life is really a reverence for this life that we're given. Imagine if our national policy, our community policy, our, our policies within our nation and our foreign policy were based on a quiet mind and an open heart and a reverence for life. It's not that complicated. And what would liberty be if we reflect on this? What is liberty? Reflect on the possibility of freedom, enlightenment. This is Suzuki Roshi. In our everyday life, you always have a chance to have enlightenment. Whatever you do, if you go to the restroom, there's a chance to attain enlightenment. If you cook, you can express your enlightenment there in the kitchen. If you clean the floor, there is enlightenment. And what he's saying, at least to me, is that freedom is possible in any circumstance. Yes, the outer things change. Gain and loss and praise and blame, fame and disrepute, pleasure and pain, the worldly wins. In the midst of them is the possibility of the unconditioned, of not the changing condition, but resting in that which is eternal and timeless and free and open that is our true nature, that is your true nature. And in meditation, you come to this space of awareness, this blessed space of noticing and witnessing all that arises and passes as if you can bow to it and say, yes, this too, joy and sorrow, gain and loss. And here we are, the heart still free. Now, I tell this, you know, seated here, it's a little warm tonight, but other than that, it's not so uncomfortable. But as I speak about it, I think of my friend Salam Khalili, who I have had come here on a couple of Monday nights to help talk about the situation in Palestine and Israel. And Salam was a journalist in Jerusalem, in the late 1960s and early 70s and um, wrote a great deal about freedom for the Palestinians at that time Um, and because it wasn't on the table in that political discourse in Israel he was regularly imprisoned for his writings um, and spent almost six years in Israeli prisons and I met him one evening um, I'd been doing teachings for the hospices of the Bay Area for people who were sitting with the dying And he was at my table at a dinner from that set of teachings. 
And I said, how did you, as a Palestinian here, end up doing hospice work? And he smiled and he said, oh, because I learned to not be so afraid of dying. I said, well, that's interesting. He said, yeah, now I want to sit with people so that um, I can tell them it's all right. And then I got curious, well, how did you learn that? I said, well, I was in prison one time and I'd been beaten a number of times. And I was being really badly beaten, tortured. And he said, you know, it happens in war. It does, on all sides, terrible things. But there I was um, in this prison, and the the Israeli guard who was in charge of the prison at that time, was um, I was being beaten. And then he said, I died. I was being kicked and beaten, and it said in the medical report, I read it afterward, that I died. There I was lying on the floor, and my body, I was bleeding out of my mouth, and my body seemed to have died. He said, but it didn't affect me at all, actually, because as that started to happen, I left my body, and I was floating up on the ceiling watching it, and I thought, this is curious. I'm so peaceful, and there's this poor person down there getting kicked and beaten, but it doesn't seem to have anything to do with me. And I saw the guard, and I was at such peace. He said, and then something really interesting happened. I said, oh. He said, <laughs> he said then, he said, all of a sudden, it, like a spell broke, that wasn't me at all, that body. I was, or even that kind of witnessing of it. He said, I became it all. My consciousness opened from that place, and I became the prison and the hills outside and the goat who's bleeding, I could hear the sound on the hillside and I became this body on the floor and the guard and the flecking paint on the prison walls and the dirt under his fingernails and the boot that was kicking this body. He said, I was everything and I was so joyful because I realized that I could never lose anything. I was it all and I, I could never die. And I was in such bliss, he said, for a long time. And then I woke up several days later in this broken body on the floor of a cell, but I was a different person. He said, that was just this body. And gradually, he said, I healed and got better. And after that, I couldn't take any side. I couldn't go out and fight for the Palestinians or fight against the Israelis or somebody. He said, because it made no sense. It was me. So I said, so what did you do? He said, oh... I married a Jewish woman, and now I have Israeli-Palestinian children and grandchildren, and that's my answer. That's my answer. So when Nelson Mandela came to the Bay Area after 27 years in prison, you know, to speak in the Oakland Coliseum, I don't know how many people, 80,000 people or something, with such dignity and presence and graciousness of heart after all those years in prison and looked at people with such generosity of spirit, that was liberty. What Salam talked about, that is freedom. We go around in this, what Alan Watts called the skin-encapsulated ego, this body of fear, the small sense of self, trying to control things, right? How have you succeeded with that? But when we sit and get quiet, when the mind quiets and the heart opens, we look around with the eyes of compassion. 
where all the people that are caught up in that small sense of self, the way Nelson Mandela must see them, or the way Salam said, I can't see that way anymore. And instead we see our connectedness and what is called the original goodness, the beauty of beings. And the Buddha saw this, the changing conditions of the world, and found the freedom of heart in the midst of it all, the sure heart's release. Suzuki Roshi again put it so simply. He said, when we realize the fact that everything changes and find our composure in it, there we discover nirvana. Just take a moment and reflect on the times of freedom in your life. What were the times that you can remember really having that sense of freedom? Because you have, and you know this, as surely as you know your own breath and name. It is not far. Trust this. Remember it. It is your true nature. It is home. So there's life, this reverence for life we might have. There's liberty, and this is the liberty of the heart, the freedom that you have again and again touched. And then the pursuit of happiness. Here we sit, paying attention to body and feelings and mind and thoughts and memories and all that. And it's a wonderful thing. Mindfulness is a kind of space that lets us see and be free. Oh, nobly born. And then what brings happiness? Is it praise? Well, how many people have had just praise and no blame? Or pleasure? I mean, pleasure is fine. But is pleasure happiness? How many people have had pleasure without pain? (coughs) Praise. I'm not sure of a formula for success, someone said, but I'm sure of the one for failure, trying to please everyone. There is instead, in the pursuit of happiness, another way of looking. Oh, nobly born, look into your own hearts at the times that you have found the deepest happiness, the truest happiness when the heart has been free, wise, content. And then look and think about it in other ways. You know, here's Plato who says, poverty is not the absence of goods, but rather the overabundance of desire. You know, the, the pursuit of happiness in America is pretty much the pursuit of pleasure, isn't it? Alexis de Tocqueville, 180 years ago, wrote... In America, I have seen the freest and best educated of men and women in the circumstances the happiest to be found in the world. Yet it seemed to me that a cloud habitually hung on their brow and they seemed almost sad in their pleasures because they never stopped thinking of all the good things they had not yet gotten. Alas, if you look at this as kind of a psychoanalysis of the national temperament, it goes back pretty far. 
But what is it that makes us happy? Here was Ajahn Jamnian who visited last month. And he said, if people bring me food, I'm happy. I can eat and get strong and so forth. And if nobody feeds me, he smiled. He said, great, I get to go on a diet. It's wonderful. <laughs> Could use a little weight loss. And if people take me around, I get to see the you know, sites of San Francisco and so forth, and I can use them to learn and teach the Dharma. And if nobody takes me around, wonderful. Then I can sit quietly and meditate. You know, and if people come for my teachings, then I get to teach and share the Dharma that I love. And if no one comes, oh, then I can walk in the woods and be quiet and, you know, do my inner practice. He said, I'm happy. That's all. I'm happy, period. Whatever happens. And you could see it in this great grin, empty, empty, happy, happy. His two English words. Happiness, happily ever after, is actually now. This is it. Happiness is not in the future, but it is the graciousness and the grace and the generosity that we have now. This is happiness. And it's wonderful, the happiness that the Buddha invites us to remember, to come to. It says here, Live in joy, in love, even among those who hate. Live in joy, in health, even among the afflicted. Live in joy, in peace, even among the troubled. Look within, quiet the mind, free from fears and attachments. Know the sweet joy of living in the way. This invitation, not holding on, but bringing the quality of presence and freedom and ease to where we are, not being in a hurry. I had a really nice uh, officer of the San Anselmo Police Force remind me of that on Sir Francis Drake Boulevard this morning when he said, gee, do you know how fast you were going? (laughs) I said, I really wasn't paying so attention to much attention to the speedometer, he said, well, I think I have to write it down for you. (laughs) What do you do, sir? I said, oh, I teach people to pay attention. (laughs) Yes, thank you. Could I see your license? (laughs) Ah, yes. It's great, you know. This was the Buddha riding a big old motorcycle and just come to remind me that there's no hurry about anything. Thank you. You can slow down. Oh, God. I didn't know I'd have to pay quite so much for the teaching. It's another issue. I remember when I was eight years old and I was in the hospital for uh, polio. They thought I had polio. I'd become uh, quite sick, and I couldn't move my body. Um, And I was in the hospital for a long time that summer. Summer. You know, you're a kid. You're supposed to go out and play. And finally I got better. I got released, and I went home. And then finally I could move my body again and go out. And I went to the park. I was so happy just to be able to walk, just to be able to, you know, roll around in the grass, just to be able to look at the blue sky that kind of innocence that we all have. And it's around us, the blue sky and the grass and 
all of these things. And so what is it that really makes us happy? You don't have to listen to anybody else. I mean, there's probably as many things that make people happy as there are human beings. But you do have to listen to your heart. The ark, it said, was built by amateurs, the Titanic by experts. (laughs) Don't wait for the experts. I remember seeing this video, I wasn't there, when the Dalai Lama went for his, was invited for his first meeting um, to go uh, to meet with both the president and go and speak to the um, joint chambers of Congress. I think it was in the Capitol Dome. And I thought when he got there and stood up to speak that he was going to talk about the situation in Tibet, which is still so terrible 50 years later the imprisonment of so many Tibetans and the destruction of the culture. But he didn't. He looked at them all, and it seemed to me, as he usually does, with great concern and love as a great bodhisattva. And he said, you all have so much responsibility in this world, um, and you have the opportunity to really use that power and responsibility with great compassion. And then he talked about using their role with compassion. didn't talk about anything he wanted at all for Tibet. He just looked them in the eye or maybe looked them in the heart and said, here you are in this role, do something beautiful with it. And he got, of course, a standing ovation. He is sometimes described as the happiest person on earth. Isn't that an amazing thing? I mean, with all the responsibilities and all the suffering that he's been through, And yet, there is this tremendous sense of happiness. This from Isaac Dennison, I think, who once suggested that there are three occasions for happiness in human life. When there is an abundance of energy, when there is the cessation of troubles and pain, and when we possess with absolute certainty that we are doing the work that is given to us by the divine. Now, the first of these belongs mostly to youth, (laughs) that abundance of energy. The second, the cessation of troubles and pain, is unfortunately not so frequent. The third, however, is open to anyone at any and all times. To possess that certainty that one is doing the will of God or what is asked of us requires coming into relationship with one's heart's deepest longings. This is the source of happiness. And sometimes it's sacrifice, sometimes it's dedication. It takes so many forms. But take a moment again just to reflect on the times of the deep happiness of your life. What have been those times of the most meaningful happiness? For me, I know that it's when I stop and touch in with this mystery of just being alive, here and now, always, not independent, but interdependent, connected. And the Buddhist description of this is the path of the bodhisattva, of the being 
committed to compassion and the well-being of all in every situation, whatever the circumstance, in family, community, internal, external, political, economic, of the whole world, the bodhisattva appears and feels like, oh, this is my family, and then brings their heart to it, to the well-being of, of all. So you don't get to choose the circumstances often. But this from Wendell Berry who writes, The cloud is free only to go with the wind. The rain is free only in its falling. The water is free only in its gathering together, in its downward courses. In law is rest. If you love the law, if you enter singing into it as water in its descent... Or song is the truest law, and you must enter singing. There is no other entrance. So it is the entering into the law, the Dharma, the way things are. The law is really the translation of the Dharma. The rain is free only in its falling. And life happens to us. And it, you know, it holds us, we belong to it. Oh, nobly born when you remember this there comes a sense of wisdom and ease and graciousness and trust and well-being, no matter the circumstances. And then you can bring what's beautiful in you back to the world. Stop thinking our global crisis is all there is. Realize that for every ongoing war and religious outrage and environmental devastation and bogus attack on another country... There are a thousand counterbalancing acts of staggering generosity and humanity and art and beauty happening all over the world right now on a breathtaking scale from flower box to cathedral. Resist the temptation to drown in fatalism, to shake your head and sigh and just throw in the karmic towel. (laughs) Realize that this is the perfect moment to envision a re-enchantment of the world to change the energy, to step right up and crank up your personal volume right when it seems dark and bitter and offensive and acrimonious and conflicted and bilious. There's your opening. Remember mystery. And finally, believe in the seeds you plant. Believe you are part of a groundswell, a resistance, a seemingly small but actually very large impending karmic transformation, a great shift, the beginning of something important and potent and compassionate and connected and unstoppable. (laughs) Happy Interdependence Day to you. (laughs) This is really what we need in this country and in the world, is this understanding, and I hope it resonates in your heart. So I'd like us to do a little chant at the end here now. And I was told by someone that um, because the Dalai Lama has had a bad case of bronchitis for the last couple of months, he was hospitalized in Delhi um, in the last few days. Um, And it sounds like he'll be fine, but he needed the hospital care and rest. Um, And so when we chant, maybe we can do also a little prayer for the Dalai Lama and for everybody else who is in difficulty on this earth, who needs healing, 
that would be none of you, I'm sure, in <laughs> body, heart, or mind, that everyone awaken and remember who they really are, especially the people who've really forgotten. You know, that that, that beauty that's maybe covered over quite deeply get retouched because it can. So the chant tonight is a really simple one. In India, when you greet someone, you put your hands together and say namaste, which means I honor the divine within you. You bow to them. Such a nice way of greeting somebody. I honor the beauty, the divine spirit. And the root of the word namaste in Sanskrit and Pali is the word namo, which means to bow to or honor. That starts a lot of the great Buddhist texts. And so what I'd like us to do is to chant Namo nine times. And as you do, you can bow to or bless any person or peoples or circumstance that you feel you'd like to offer your blessings to. Include the Dalai Lama in that. I'm sure he'll bow back to you if you pay attention. Um, And then we'll go out into this warm summer night, this beautiful summer evening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.